Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you can start to be very conscious about how your friendships are operating in your life and whether they are bringing the right energy or not, you're going to be in a much better position as you grow up. A friendship lasts for a season, a reason, or a lifetime. Because there will be days when you really don't feel like it to be the best version of myself. And there are lots of days where that takes a bit of a beating to try to bounce back and hold my nerve. That's my commitment for myself. Welcome to the Elevate podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Elevate podcast, where I am thrilled to be introducing you to today's guest, who is the award-winning writer, broadcaster and psychotherapist, Lucy Beresford. She is the author of the self-help book, Happy Relationships at Home, Work and Play, and three additional excellent novels, Something I'm Not, Hungry for Love and Invisible Threads, which is set in New Delhi, India. Lucy is also the founder of the Kindness Club, and any of you that have been fans or followers of the Elevate mission will know how important this is and how well it aligns with us because kindness is one of our five main superpowers, and therefore we were very excited to be talking about its award-winning Refuge for Book scheme, which creates libraries in shelters run by UK domestic violence charity Refuge. Lucy has done a lot of projects, has headed a lot of stories and done incredible things for lots of people. But perhaps she is best known for hosting a weekly sex and relationships phone-in show on the LBC radio, which for my international listeners, that stands for London Broadcasting Company. She was there dubbed the Naughty Mary Poppins. Lucy also hosts On the Couch for Reaction Magazine, reviews the papers every fortnight for The Jeremy Vine Show and Times Radio. And her exceptional TEDx talk, Infidelity, To Stay or To Go, has been viewed on YouTube over 2.7 million times. She works with adults clinically in central London and has also worked as a psychotherapist in New Delhi. She says in her own words, her superpower is that analysis of relationships informs everything I do. The situation may be helping a therapy patient thrive after a crisis or explaining live on air our nation's complex attachment to the NHS or to politicians or to celebrities. From speaking to sexual health campaigners or to Love Island contestants, to the couple who gave her a tantric massage live on the air in the studio, her work on the radio has broken boundaries, ripped up taboos by explaining the difference between vulvas and vaginas and smashed the listening figures to no end. Well, that has got me extremely thrilled and I'm honoured to be welcoming the lovely Lucy Beresford to the Elevate podcast today. Thank you so much for joining me and for being with us on the show. Hi, Lucy. 
I am really flattered to be invited. It is so lovely to be speaking to you and appearing on your podcast. Oh, it's really exciting for me too. It's wonderful that we have such a wide range of guests, but I think some of your experience, as I said in my introduction already, covers such wide areas of, of professional expertise. But I love how you've worked to bring it all together. And one of the big umbrellas that I think you've worked towards and which really aligns with Elevate is on female empowerment. So I thought if you wouldn't mind, we could start there. Yes. And I'm really glad you've zoned in on that immediately because I like to think that that really informs pretty much all of my work. And maybe that that's because I'm female that I'm coming at it from that position. But Around me, I've just heard so many people over the years, so many women, so many girls feeling like they don't have permission to be the person that they want to be or to evolve into the person that they want to be, the woman or the, it could be uh, in a career way, it could be in their sexual intimacy way, or it could just be how they show up as a female. And I think many of the things that I've done in my work have led me to believe that that's where the power lies for for society in general, that if we could really harness that, the transformational effects would be incredible. There was this really interesting article that was written a couple of years back where it was looking at how, and this shows you how um, how long ago it was, it, it was talking about Theresa May as Prime Minister, Angela Merkel uh, leading in Germany, Nicola Sturgeon in um in Scotland, uh, we had Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. Suddenly, there seemed to be this pivot moment where women were taking centre stage. And I think the more that younger girls can see that happening in all walks of life, uh, the more they will be influenced to kind of take control of their own lives. Absolutely. It is definitely important to see role models and have representation. And I think one of the things I picked up on when you were talking about some of the work you've done on radio was that on the VT radio, you have a hashtag girl power hour, which I thought was very, very exciting and interesting for me doing the work I do with young girls, um, where you really showcase the best of female talent. And I was excited because it takes time out to celebrate other female success stories and you share stories from across topics. So how do you survive infidelity to how to break up with a best friend? And I love that. Breaking up with a best friend, I think, is an interesting conversation. It really relates to some of the work I'm doing at the moment. And it seems to be a topic that we don't really have a lot of resource for. And I wondered if you could shed some light on it. Yes, I think it's a really important area to talk about because our friends are the family that we choose. They're the ones that we draw into our lives and spend a lot of time with. And they really reinforce our sense of who we are. And therefore, if a friendship isn't working, it can be incredibly unsettling because we have often invested a lot of ourselves in that relationship and we feel like we have shown up as a good friend. I One of my books is called Happy Relationships, uh, Homework and Play, and it looks at the different relationships we have with various people in our lives. And by far and away, uh, the, the chapter that gets a lot of visibility is around friendship. I often suggest that people do a friendship audit, which sounds quite clinical and it almost takes, uh, it sounds like it might be taking the joy out of a relationship. But I do think that it's important from time to time, whatever your age, you know, even if you're maybe even a teenager, to really ask yourself, 
is this person that I'm spending time with or is this person that I'm trying to spend time with, but they're ignoring me? Are they really bringing out the best in me? And is this friendship something that really nourishes me, really nurtures me? Or is does it always feel like a bit of a chore or do I always feel like I'm treading on eggshells? And I don't think you can learn that lesson too soon, actually, that it is OK to say to yourself, this friendship, I feel like I'm over investing. I think it's imbalanced. I think that every time I am with this person, they pull me down energetically. If you can start to be very conscious about how your friendships are operating in your life and whether they are bringing the right energy or not, you're going to be in a much better position as you grow up to make those decisions maybe a bit faster because we we all have those situations where there's a friendship in our life and it seems to limp along for a long time. It has almost outlived its usefulness. And that's partly because we we meet different people. We meet them in the playground. Then we meet them when we're studying English literature at school. And then we might meet them at a club. And then as we grow older, we meet them in the workplace or when we start to have children. But that doesn't mean to say that the friendship is going to endure forever. They say, actually, that a friendship lasts for a season, a reason, or a lifetime. And as soon as you recognize that, you can start to let go of some of the relationships that aren't working for you, which sounds a bit brutal, sounds a bit uh, maybe quite self-absorbed. But actually, you do only have one life. So you don't want to spend your time hanging around with people who bring you down or who talk down to you, who belittle you, who are very flaky, they're always late, they forget your birthday. These are the situations where you have the right to be able to say, this isn't working for me. As I say, you'll be in a better position throughout your life to be able to make sure that you are being nourished and supported by the very best people in your life. Definitely. Even as an adult, we can struggle with it. I wanted to talk a little bit about this term best friend, what the advice parents or teachers should be giving to their girls when their best friends are changing. But what does one do? How does one practically break up with somebody? I guess that's my second part of the question. (laughs) Second part of the question. Okay, so let's take the first bit first, which is a reminder that change is the one constant in human life. And that in a way, adolescence in particular, is the first big platform for people to physically experience for themselves changes, not just obviously bodily, physical changes, and that there's nothing wrong with that, that actually it's necessary in the same way as teenagers and tweenagers are going to start to move away a little bit from the parental orbit, they will also perhaps start to change their friendship group. And I think certainly for individuals, some people are still very wedded to the idea of a best friend. It makes them feel safe. It's what they, as you say, they might have known in primary school and junior school. But just because actually that changes doesn't automatically mean that there's something wrong with you or that you're a failure because you haven't been able to keep hold of a best friend when everyone else around you appears to be doing so. But I think it's necessary to, again, really lean into what you yourself need. Are you someone that does need to have that extra close person? And if so, what is that really about? Is that because you're nervous about stepping into 
the next phase of your life on your own? Are you clinging to the idea of a best friend because you don't want to do things on your own? Or are you just maybe naturally a bit more introverted and therefore the big gangs, the big groups, they don't really appeal to you in the same way. So definitely identify what your own preference is. But there is certainly nothing wrong with actually changing the best friend model. And there may be a period of time where you just don't have a one particular best friend as you become a teenager, and maybe the gang does expand a little bit, that's great because you're starting to absorb new ideas, new influences, maybe, as you say, a different fashion sense, a passion for sport or music uh, or other kind of hobbies. And this is going to be important for your development. So just because you're leaving behind a best friend, look at it as an opportunity for different people to come into your life with different ideas maybe who will see you in a different way and help you grow in a different way. So it might be quite painful, but it's also something that's very, very life enhancing. And that brings me to the second part of your question, which is how do you deal with a friendship breakup if it ends up being painful? And I think you're absolutely right to link it to other forms of endings like a romantic relationship and the heartbreak that is very well understood. So why would we not similarly understand that that might happen to our friendships? Because those friendships are often arguably even more intimate at a particular age in our life. They might actually be the one person who's who gets to know all of us, who sees us in our good days and our bad days. And suddenly the rupture of that can feel really, really traumatic. So I think it is about the way to deal with that is to treat it as another ending and you have to mourn the ending so all of that needs to be acknowledged be super kind to yourself do things that you really love and and maybe mourn it in the way that you would mourn an actual death that you maybe you have to have a ritual maybe you have to sort of go to the last place you saw that person and and say goodbye to them because there might be a difficulty in saying goodbye to them in reality um Lots of ways in which you need to acknowledge the ending. That's always very important. Yeah. And I think what you've just hit on is really important is is the acknowledgement. The acceptance comes with acknowledgement. Obviously, I don't know how many teenagers have the know-how or the insight. So I and I actually think the generation before them, i.e., my generation of parents, grew up in a time where possibly we weren't taught the skills or the, the the actual ability to be able to talk and recognize that our children are going through something quite challenging. I think we know that they're having a hard time, and I think we understand teen years can be tricky, but actually having the language, the um insights to know how to be a good support for your young girl or your tween can be quite hard. So I think this is a really nice conversation to be having and to remind parents and carers out there that if you don't know what to say, you're not alone. Lots of us don't know how to deal with our children's breakups, romantic or friendship wise, but that actually not to fear it. I think we almost don't know what to say. So we say nothing. Yes. And also, I think it's it can be quite scary to think that you're having conversations about really what one might term quite adult themes like loss and change and growth but I think that it's never too soon to have those conversations in age-appropriate language because otherwise our our young people can feel very helpless 
that they don't have the language. It's not, it's not as if these things only start to happen to you when you're 18 or 21. These things happen to you, yeah, when you're when you maybe leave one school and go to another, that actually maybe you were the only person that went to the next big school and everybody else went to another school. It's a really wise parent who can in tune that and start a conversation around uncomfortable feelings and loss and sadness, but also in particular maintaining self-worth because don't forget along with loss along with breakups often comes this fear of I did it wrong I was the I was at fault I wasn't a good enough friend Uh, I'll never have another best friend again you know all of those doubts around fear of rejection yeah being rejected for not being good enough and it's another brilliant opportunity for a parent to start those conversations around being good enough and what that means because it's something that we adults still grapple with but that's because actually much earlier on we haven't had those conversations where our self-confidence is reinforced to know that it is okay to break up with someone it doesn't mean that we're a bad person or that we're you know really negative that actually it's it's a, it all about learning and, and it's the grown-ups who have to right kind of steer that conversation in the early days. We're all trying to work it out ourselves, but I, I can assure you that if someone had talked to me when I was younger, I, I think I'd be making a manifest of it now as a grown-up. No, I hear that. And I, I also hear both sides of the argument. I think some parents take it very personally when their child is hurt. And they feel let down by another child or, you know, it's there's a lot of projection, a lot, you know, a a lot of issue going around and and it can often spill into the adult relationships. And I think you're absolutely right. All of these things will enhance our relationship building skills as we're growing and hopefully teach our girls how to be more aware of healthy relationships. Another part of your work experience that really touched me, which was a a lot of work that you do for personal reasons, is is based in India. So I do have a huge love and affection for that country just because that's where my ancestry is from and my heritage. So I love love the fact that you've spent a lot of time in India. But one of the things that I know, the projects that you have had there has to do with body confidence and a little bit around Bollywood, which is a massive industry. And anyone growing up in any kind of Indian or South Asian background will know all about Bollywood. I just wanted you to talk a little bit about some of the issues and stereotypes and stigmas that I think are affecting our young girls a lot. I think you've absolutely tied that beautifully together at the end there. It affects very young girls a lot because they're so impressionable. They're working out what their identity is and therefore they're looking outside themselves to see what is accepted. How do I get accepted? And what we see at the moment is a very particular portrayal of the beauty ideal, not just in India, but obviously around the world. But the interesting thing to note is that that shifts over time. I've done a lot of work on the psychology of beauty for companies like L'Oreal and Unilever, who've got operations globally around the world. And what we're beginning to see, a change in that beauty ideal globally as practitioners and 
ordinary women and girls on the street in Brazil, in Riyadh, in New York, in Singapore, are putting their videos and stories online about how they use makeup. They're not using skin whitening creams any longer. They're embracing their natural hairstyles. The more that young girls see this and see this material around the world, they will start to recognize that their beauty, their beauty comes from within. It isn't about what you look like. It's about who you are. Now, the problem with cinema in particular, Bollywood and Hollywood, and the reason why I wanted to do my documentary on body confidence is because they are taking quite a lot of time to catch up with what's actually happening, let's say, on the street. When I say, again, on the street, I mean in Instagram and TikTok and in the bedrooms of ordinary people and bedrooms and bathrooms of ordinary people. Um, what's happening? What happens in cinema is that it's a fantasy. They're selling you an ideal. It's a bit like advertising. They're selling you uh, an ambition of what life could look like in terms of how great your clothes look or what your superpowers might be. Now, the irony is that the superpower of the young girl, and let's say a young Indian girl, is that she has her own personal beauty that doesn't conform to things that are very stereotypical, that in fact her, her superpower is that she stands out, not that she blends in. We as human beings we want to blend in. We think that that's where the safe space is to be accepted and to be part of the gang and to look well like everyone else. It's why when you're a teenager, everybody starts, all, you know, all, all the boys end up looking like Harry Styles or Justin Bieber with their haircuts or all the girls, you know, really want to look like Taylor Swift or they want to look like um, Deepika Padukone. But actually, your strength as an individual is how you can set yourself apart from other people. And therefore, to embrace who you are means that your aura changes, your energy changes, and, and people will be drawn to you because of your authenticity. You're not going to be trying to be something you're not. You're not going to be slapping skin whitening products, which are banned in this country, but are still available. I, when I was making my documentary, I found outlets in Southall that are stocking it. Um, but these products, they are not speaking to you and the value that you have as a human being, as an individual, as a woman, as a girl. They are speaking to a, a suppression, really, of making you conform to something. And if you can see that the ideals within advertising and in Bollywood and Hollywood are just fantasy. It can help you actually relate better to who you are because you're, you're living in the real world. You're not really living in a fantasy world. That actually, the more that we start to see role models who look like us, as you said, Michelle Yeoh, although to be fair, she did look a million dollars with fantastic hair and an amazing gown. Uh, but the sentiment is the same, that actually if we see more women with Asian representation, if we see an actress such as I interviewed, Tanasha Chatterjee, who starred in uh, Brick Lane, the movie, she 
when I spoke to her, she said, I, I didn't want to straighten my hair. I didn't want to lighten my skin. I wanted to be an actress. I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to be an authentic storyteller. And I couldn't do that with skin whitening cream all over my face and, and hair straightening products weighing down my hair. And she's actually a really good example of someone who has carved out a strong career in Bollywood, uh, not the Bollywood, you know, blockbusters, but the really kind of meaty roles that, that actresses are really desperate to secure because she was authentic. And I think it's that balance for young girls in adolescence where you want to fit in and there's nothing worse, for example, than being the tallest teenager in your group or the teenager who starts to develop breasts before everybody else or who has your period before everybody else. You feel like a complete outlier and you feel very isolated. But actually what you realize as you as you grow through those months and a couple of years of adolescence is that you you start to find your tribe. You find people who value you for who you are. That is way more important. And that's a quite a hard message to convey to teenagers when they're at the stage of thinking, but I just want to fit in. I just want everyone to love me. I just want boys to fancy me. I just want all my friends to stick around me. But actually being true to who you are, that's how you'll win in the end. That's very powerful and really reassuring. I just think having grown up in an Indian community and Indian family and seeing the things that happen around you, not just in, well, I think the problem is, even if the young girls feel that, if the generation above them haven't changed their way of thinking and they still think that being lighter skinned is important or bigger eyes is important. And the bleaching thing with Indian girls is just extraordinary, I think. And it is all to do with you, what you're saying is altering who I am and not portraying myself in my authentic self because the fear of being rejected is so great. It's so great. I just, when I spoke at the Jaipur Literature Festival uh, last year, I just remember being astonished that there were skin whitening creams being advertised by Emma Watson, which well, is a white actress. I mean, the whole idea of that was very skewed, that actually there wasn't even an acknowledgement to, to try to understand what might be going on on the home territory. But all I would say is, it is about challenging the narrative and you're absolutely right it's going to be really hard to dismantle a lot of thinking that has existed for for in previous generations but the 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 story i always tell is you're absolutely right there was an era even in the west where being tanned was frowned upon because in effect that meant that you were lower class because you worked in the fields but then in the 60s and 70s with changes in society that meant that if you were even not terribly well off, you could still go to Spain. And if you were very well off, then you had a yacht in Saint-Tropez. There was actually a shift in the narrative that actually to be tanned meant that you were prosperous. It meant that you didn't have to work. You had time to, to lie on a sun lounger and do absolutely nothing. And what that meant was that actually you saw 
people actually wanting to have fake tan because they wanted to give the impression that, yeah, they too had just spent the last two months in the Caribbean. So you can see how the narrative can change. And if it can change at a society level, then it can definitely change in a family level where you can start to have conversations that say, that's just outdated thinking. If you have darker skin, your beauty, your skin is still glowing. You've still got gorgeous eyelashes. You've still got, you know, beautiful features. It is, as is with so many things, about accentuating what you have and celebrating what you have. And conversations with young girls is the perfect opportunity to start getting them to focus on their beauty within, that it's never about the colour of their skin. In fact, the irony is that there are a lot of people around the world who would crave to have slightly darker skin because it would mean to them that they look like a lot of other actresses and singers that are coming to the fore and influencers and beauty uh, beauty representatives who have got darker skin than, let's say, the traditional influencers. Which is exactly the taboo that we need to try and break because growing up, I definitely spent time in India watching every auntie and every household and every advert actually on television selling cream that's called Fair and Lovely. So if you're putting the name on the creams that call them, you know, fair and lovely, and the only way to be lovely is if you're fair, the messaging and the the uh, unconscious bias that you're creating towards people who are beautiful or the ones that are fair is, is, is very hard to then unpack. I want to talk to you about something you've created, which is, sounds just glorious, the Kindness Club, and very, very aligned with one of my superpowers for Elevate, which is kindness. So let's talk about what kindness is and how did the Kindness Club come to be? Again, in my book, Happy Relationships, in which I talk about your relationships with other people, what I identified at the very outset is that you can only really have a great relationship with other people if you forge a great relationship with yourself. And being kind to yourself is often the cornerstone of getting through so much. You know, just those days when, in fact, maybe you've overdone it physically or you've been studying so hard to actually take time out and do something kind for yourself gives you a chance to reset and what I noticed is that actually a lot of people are very harsh on themselves that actually if we if somebody spoke to us the way that we often speak to ourselves in our head um, well you know if they did that to us in the street they'd be arrested they'd be you know carted off Uh, But we can be unbelievably brutal to ourselves. So that was the original idea around the kindness club was, you know, how could I start some conversations around kindness? And I realized very quickly that actually people experience kindness as being something done to other people. And I figured, well, okay, let's let's run with that, because that's going to be good as well. That's that's a win win that in a way, being kind to others and and um, helping people also from an anthropological point of view makes us feel good about ourselves it makes us feel like we've you know um improved someone's day and i i live in central london and all year i'm basically helping tourists who can't find their way and it's my tiny little act of kindness and i began to think actually how could we 
build this, what I'd love to see is building it into the curriculum that actually, what could we do every day that is kind, kind for someone else, but also kind for ourselves. And I set up the Kindness Club to start having those conversations in companies, uh, in homes, in prisons. And then I've also done a lot of work with Refuge, the domestic violence charity, whereby I create libraries in their shelters. And I do that by taking in books that people donate to me. They send them in the post or they give them to me when I have dinner with them. And then I set up libraries in the shelters. And it's just this amazing way in which kindness has the power to just completely change your day. If you have been on the receiving end of someone doing something kind to you, I mean, you'll you'll probably think about it for days after, maybe even years after, because it, of how it made you feel in that moment. Sometimes being kind to yourself is the last thing you feel you've got the energy for, but actually, it will it will be really helpful and supportive of you, and uh, and and enables you to kind of give to others. I wanted to ask you in that vein, just out of curiosity, about altruism and what do you think we can ever truly be altruistic? Yes, I think it can't have survived as a human behaviour without it conferring some kind of advantages. And a lot of research has been done on it because it would appear to fly in the face of all sorts of other human behaviour, which is fundamentally quite selfish and designed around what Freud called, you know, the life principle and and uh, and it could be quite narcissistic. But if you think about societies where older people are revered a lot more and why for example it is that women stop having periods at a particular time but they still get involved in child raising by being maybe a grandparent or an aunt you could argue that that's almost the ultimate in altruistic behavior because it's not actually their child it's their child's child couldn't necessarily not necessarily their role but why do why do we do things for other people and there is a theory that it's actually part of the collective that we as human beings come into this world physically joined to another person that's our template we are part of a group before we really know what being part of a group actually means we are we start to grow in the womb surrounded by another human being. And that, I think, speaks to the longing as human beings to make connections. And therefore, kindness, altruistic behaviour, doing things where it appears that you yourself are not getting any direct advantage of it, actually speaks to that need in human beings to keep the group intact to make sure that the community is around us. Because somewhere deep down, we know that no man is an island and that actually we do need the group. And that if we give to the group in some shape or form, we will get something back at some point, whether it's the immediate gratification of knowing that you've helped someone or whether it's later down the line. This is why people say, you know, why should I pay tax? If I don't have children, why should I pay taxes, which go to schools and things like that? And that's because when you get older, those children in school might be the doctors looking after you or the care home workers getting you out of bed every day. What goes around comes around is, is what altruism is really about. There's a lot more young people discovering ideas around 
their gender and their sexuality and that being a big topic of conversation of how young one is before they can work that out for themselves or what the appropriate time in life is to be able to deem that um something you know because obviously there's hormone therapy there's people that do want to have sex changes or and there's parental groups now really struggling with their teenagers who might think they know what what they want but maybe not sure how to support it and they want to maybe have these conversations in a way that is healthy and productive but don't have the skills to do so and I wondered if as a psychotherapist as somebody who's worked with lots of families and lots of different types of scenarios in this generation of parenting I often get the question that is asked and I'm going to put this in quote phases teenagers go through phases most lots of us go through phases and I wonder if we can ever really talk about this worry that parents are having around their children working out their genders and their sexuality as a phase or not. And I wonder if you had any thoughts on that and how we should possibly educate ourselves and help our kids make the right choices. I always start uh, conversations on this topic, reminding us all that actually who we are is very often innate from a very early age, that if you have a particular sexual orientation, that will have probably manifested itself very early on, sort of age two, three, four, five. You won't know that it's your sexual orientation, but it will have some, there will be some leanings towards it. So on that basis, sometimes it is unhelpful to talk about phases because I have so many clients who've come to me who are either gay or are transitioning because they're trans and they will say to me but I've just I've just known this since I was little and I couldn't really talk to anyone about it and I think the beauty of the time we're living in now is at least we're having those conversations so that's the context it is however also the case that childhood is all about growth and change and whilst we might not necessarily want to talk about phases, we can definitely talk about fluctuations. And all of this hormonal change is taking place at a time when the, our young people are also trying to work out who they are just in terms of their identity, not in terms of hormones or sexual orientation, but just what they like and what they lean towards. And we are very imitative creatures. We learn about the world by copying other people. We learn how to hold a knife and fork. We learn how to uh, tie our shoelaces. We learn how to do our 10 times table. But we also learn how to treat the opposite sex. We also learn how to start an argument or end an argument. And we learn about who we might be sexually by watching other people, which again is why exposing our children to as much culture as possible, as many paintings, as many movies, as many books, as many sporting opportunities as possible so that they can start to work out who they are. And all I would say is that I do notice, and we see this with eating disorders as well, is that there can be a lot of copying, a lot of imitating where someone who's the stronger of the group will say, well, I feel this way. 
And a few other people will feel, well, that sounds that sounds a little bit like me. I think I'm going to lean in that way. And all I would say, if you're a parent, is to just hold your nerve at this time and just and and lean into as many conversations around it as possible. The key thing is you want to keep the lines of communication open. You don't want to say, yes, I think you're definitely bisexual. And you don't want to say, don't be ridiculous, you can't possibly be bisexual. It's very much about just saying, whatever you want to talk about, whatever you want to talk about, I'm here to have that debate. Because at some point, this will settle. It, and I often say it's one of the reasons why a lot of psychiatric medication is not licensed in this country in particular for anybody under 18. I mean, there is there is stuff that under 18s can have, but there is quite a lot of, for example, mood stabilizers and, and, and lots of other psychiatric medication that is simply not licensed for people under 18. And that speaks to an acknowledgement that there's too much change going on. So if you can frame everything that you're doing in the conversations with your young people, and if you're a young person listening now to this podcast, just know that there's a lot happening and it's all good. It's all good. There's no need to settle on one thing. If you really do feel, yes, I have always felt gay or I have always never really questioned the fact that I'm straight that's all good. If you're more curious and more questioning, that's all good too. It's all good. Just keep talking. Excellent. Can you name something that gives you hope? Young people, the the, oh. the energy of them and the and the wisdom that they don't know they have, but which comes out in beautiful ways, that that gives me a lot of hope. There's a there's so much weird stuff happening at the moment, but the young people will come through and change it. Oh, brilliant. Love it. And tell me, what are your three non-negotiables in having a healthy relationship? One with yourself and then with others, or are they the same? Oh, they might be the same, actually. Oh, no, they're not the same, are they, really? Well, I suppose, yeah, certainly treating myself with respect. Um, and that has led me to make uh, choices around, yeah, the people that I have in my life, uh, to, you know, not put up with contempt, to not put up with being uh, belittled, and to to be surrounded by people who are supportive of me in in whatever whichever version of Lucy shows up at any one time because I'm not perfect and I'm never always going to have good days um and I think that that is very important certainly I'm very keen on sort of healthy protocols so in terms of sleep and food that's a, a really big thing for me I I've never really drunk alcohol I've never really enjoyed it never seen much of the point of it I've never had never had a hangover so I can't even speak from experience I can't even say oh yeah that was really awful I'll never do that again I've just thought that just seems like a complete waste of time and money and it's interesting how many of the people in my life actually don't really drink that much if at all so I've noticed that over the time and I think a non-negotiable is and this is the hardest thing actually is self-worth uh, I it's the thing I have to work on every day I think my 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 belief in myself 
will only be a positive thing. And that's why I try so hard to deal with it. Um, and and I guess that is non-negotiable. I, I, I That's my gift to myself, even though I, I'm pretty bad at it. That's the thing I focus on most days. Oh, isn't that fantastic to hear? Because that's exactly what we want all young girls to be doing. But it is hard, as you said. And it's hard. It's hard. But if you can make a commitment to yourself, because there will be days when you really don't feel like it. And I I meditate twice a day. I tap every day. I I want to be, that's my commitment to myself, to be the best version of myself that I can be. And there are lots of days where that takes a bit of a beating. So to to try to bounce back and hold my nerve, that's my commitment for myself. Oh, you could not say that in a more elevated and language if I tried. It was like I've given you my exact my exact um, uh-huh. vision for what I would love. So if you could go and ch- if you could change something for girls in the future, what would that be? What was the one thing you'd love to see change more than anything? I think it would be more representation of diversity to be able for all girls to look. I mean, I, I had this thing, irrespective of what one might think of Margaret Thatcher's politics, I remember thinking, oh, my God, a prime minister is female. And that changed everything for me. Uh, I haven't gone into politics. It's not like it made me think I need to do that. But I just recognised that actually it was a very subtle messaging. And therefore, that's why the women's England football team and their success last summer was just so exciting not for the football even though that was actually really impressive as well it was way better than the men's football I thought um and played with a different kind of um a different kind of different level of uh kindness maybe uh but I just thought that was incredible and I know from looking for example at my youngest goddaughter who is passionate about rugby for example uh, that seeing those girls winning that trophy was phenomenal so I think it would be yeah better representation and if you could go back and whisper something to your teen self knowing what you know about life but not changing anything for yourself what would it be you are amazing let me end the interview on those fabulous three words we are grateful to have you here because you really are amazing so thank you for that and if anybody listening would love to get a hand they're on your book or find out more about the kindness club or maybe reach out to you for psychotherapy support um also or just listen to you on the radio because that's also very wonderful is the best place to direct everybody to your website exactly lucyberrisford.co.uk i think no i think it's lucyberrisford.com actually uh, it got revamped last year I will link it in the show notes and I will also put links to everything we've spoken about today so that people can watch some of the documentaries you've done, maybe listen to some of your programs and buy your books because they've all been wonderfully insightful and as is this conversation. So I can't thank you enough, Lucy, for being here. I've really enjoyed it, Ramita. I'm so glad we met. (laughs) And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestipino 
from The Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.